And we're in Mark 12 today. Uh, Chuck said last week that we were uh, pausing uh, the Gospel of Mark until we got to Easter, but there's this week and next week is when uh, we're still in Mark, and then after that, then we'll be in Ephesians uh, up until Christmas, and then we'll resume Mark uh, in the run-up to Easter. And um, in this passage, Mark 12, uh, Jesus has entered uh, Jerusalem. He's entering the last week of his life, and um, he's entered Jerusalem as a king. And then a couple of weeks ago, we heard from Chuck about uh, Jesus clearing the temple courts and also withering the fig tree. And that was like almost an image of Jesus as a judge. And um, interestingly, just before this passage, at the end of Mark 11, uh, there's almost a moment where the religious leaders are questioning Jesus. They're questioning his authority, and they're almost judging him as well. And um, they ask him this question, they ask whether John the Baptist, uh, whether his, uh, John's baptism, whether it was from God or of man. And, um, she, uh, sorry, no, they ask, what are you doing, what, by what authority are you doing these things? And then Jesus asks that question to them. John's baptism, was it of God and of man? And they're like, oh, I don't know. We can ask him this, but then we'd be found out, or we can answer this, and then we'd be found out. So they say, we don't know. And uh, Jesus says, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing. And it's almost like in this moment, he's been judged. And then he turns to the religious leaders and says, it's my turn. It's my turn to share. It's my turn. And um, we'll pick that up. But before I got married, I lived in a flat with my good friend, Adam Foster, uh, of the Ellen site now. And um, we had one situation when I was living there. I was away for the weekend. And somehow I'd managed to lose my flat keys. Uh, when I was away for the weekend, which was an absolute nightmare. Um, so Monday morning came, and Adam gave me his keys uh, to get a spare set cut. So I just thought, oh, we'll just do that. I'll just I'll take the hit. Um, we'll do that. And so I get uh, on my way. I um, get ready to go out and uh, to get the keys cut. And now uh, the role I was in, it was quite a formal role I was working in. So I was wearing a formal shirt. I was wearing suit trousers. And I was wearing uh, suit shoes as well, formal shoes as well, which were very nice and shiny, um, but probably not the best grip. And the issue with this was that it was winter in Rosemount and it was snowy and icy. And I'd kind of debated in my head, do I wear more grippy shoes? Um, but I decided I'll be okay. I'm quite good on my feet, so I'll be all right. So I kind of tried, walk down Rosemount and uh, kind of down this hill, trying to avoid all the ice, trying to make sure that I was all right. But then suddenly disaster strikes and I like go like proper banana skin down and I hit the deck and I don't know if you've ever had that moment where you've fallen over in the ice but the thing you do is that in one swift motion you go down and then you're like back up straight away and be like I'm fine I'm fine not that anyone was asking me if I was okay but I was like just I'm okay I'm fine people like oh I didn't even know he fell over and he's like telling me I'm fine um so I'm like super embarrassed by that and I'd like get myself dust myself down go to the key shop, I get to the key cutting shop, and I look in my pocket for the keys, and they're not there. And I do, like, kind of, like, check everywhere for my keys, check in my bag, they're not there. So I'm like, oh, no, they must be where I fell. So, avoiding the ice, back I go up to Rosemount, I'm looking for these keys, I'm kind of scrambling around on on the ice, Um, I decided that there was a police station nearby, and I thought, maybe between me falling over and coming back, the keys were handed into the police station. So I go to the police station, I explain my story. Uh, they didn't have the keys, but the, the police officer found it absolutely entertaining that over a weekend I'd managed to lose two sets of keys. Um, and then I was like, okay, right, what do I need to do? I need to, maybe I need to phone a locksmith to get the keys changed uh, so we can actually get in. I need to phone my landlord to tell him about this. And I was just like, I'll just go back one last time to check whether these keys are there. So again, I'm scrambling around in the snow. And then I look up, and in my eye line, just on the ledge, just beside 
someone had put these keys there. I was like, yes, I've got the keys. I've got the keys. It turned out my actual set of keys were in my car as well. So I actually lost them. I just mislaid them. But I just remember that sense of relief. But the point is that I was set off on the wrong course on that Monday morning because of what I was wearing on my feet. It was my foundations that set me off on the wrong course. And that's a silly story, but it's a true story. Because what we base our lives on, what we uh, set our foundations on, has the ability to throw us off course, or also has the ability to set us on the right track. And Jesus, when he speaks to the religious leaders here, he's asking them, what are you basing your life on? What are your foundations? Are your foundations stable? And today, I want to look at three foundations that are worth building on, truths from the passage that we can build our lives around. So we're going to read uh, Mark 12, which is starting in verse 1. It will appear on screen. And I'm going to find it in this Bible here. And if you don't have the page yet, on the purple Bibles, it is page 765. Here we go. Mark 12. Jesus then began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a pit for the wine press, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. But they seized him, they beat him, and sent him away empty handed. Then he sent another servant to them. They struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. He still sent another, and that one they killed. He sent many others. Some of them they beat, others they killed. He had one left to send, a son whom he loved. In some translations it says a beloved son. He sent him last of all, saying, They will respect my son. But the tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read this passage of scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Then the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders looked for a way to arrest him because they knew he had spoken the parable against him. But they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away. Why don't we just pray for this morning? Just as um, we were worshipping, I just got a, a sense that maybe for some of us we're distracted. We're distracted by some things in our personal life, and I just... Just feel really strongly just to pray for that now, Lord. We just pray against any distraction from you, any distraction from your word, Lord. We just center ourselves around you and we focus on you in this time. We thank you for your word. We pray that you'd speak to us today now. Amen. Amen. So, We're looking at three foundational truths uh, to set our lives on the right course. And the first one is that the vineyard belongs to God. So imagine uh, you're in the story and imagine the first thing that strikes you is that image 
of the vineyard. It says in verse 1, a man planted a vineyard, he put a wall around it, he dug a wine press, he dug a pit, he built a watchtower, then he rented it to some farmers. And Jesus is painting this picture of the vineyard. And he's painting this, and maybe you and I, we can maybe picture that in our mind's eye of what a vineyard might look like. But to the people at the time, when they had heard that word, a man builds a vineyard, they would have been immediately reminded of passages of scripture from the Old Testament. They would have been immediately reminded that this is a story about God and his people. This is a story about uh, God being the vineyard owner and the Israelites being the vineyard. And they would have just known straight away, okay, okay, this is what we're talking about. Examples would be in Psalm 80, in uh, Jeremiah 2 and Isaiah 5 as well. All have this narrative of God being the vineyard owner and uh, Israel being the vineyard. And even uh, John, uh, sorry, Jesus in his teachings in John 15 talks about being the true vine. Those who remain in me, I remain in them. Being the true vine. Again, just that narrative of, of the vineyard. And I read this verse and I think about it. And the care and attention that that owner went into building the vineyard. He would have had to clear rocks on the hillside to make space so that he could actually plant uh, the seeds, plant the fruit. He would then have to uh, clear um, clear all everything out of the way, make sure that he was then able to dig that pit for the wine press. He'd then build that watchtower so he could see if any animals or any enemies were coming so that he could get that away. He would have that all up and running. So this vineyard owner had worked so long digging away hard blood, sweat and tears to get this vineyard ready. And then he says that he sets up for success and he rents it to some tenants. God created that vineyard and it belongs to him. And our first foundational truth to remember is that the owner of the vineyard is God. He still owns it and he's coming back. And God, in the same way, created us, our life our breath, what we do, where we are, our place, our vocation, our calling, our space. He brought us that. He is the maker of the vineyard in our story too. The vineyard belongs to God. It means our house, our material possessions, our, the car we drive, the wallet and the money within it, our families, our lives belong to him. And as I was reading this, just the thing that kept coming back to me is, do we act like we own everything that we have? Do we act like we're the owners of the vineyard? Or do we act like actually we're stewarding it for God? That we're looking after it for him? Our lives are not our own, but they belong to God. He is the vineyard owner. And uh, this morning when I think about that, I don't think of that as as a thing that we need to burden ourselves with. But I think of that as almost like a freedom. A freedom that comes, a liberation that comes from that, of thinking, oh, actually, I don't need to be in control because I know that God is the vineyard owner, that he is in control, that he is the owner. And I just look after it. I'm just stewarding it. A bit like uh, when Chuck quoted John Wimber last week, where um, we're just changing his pocket and he can spend us any way we like. None of us are in control, but we need to rely and to trust on the owner of the vineyard. God and remember that the vineyard belongs to God. So that's my first foundational truth. The vineyard belongs to God. The second is that the harvest comes out of relationship. So this this vineyard owner, he then rents uh, the vineyard to some tenants. And imagine, again, if you've just been given this land to work on, 
I could imagine that the vineyard owner would want to set you up well for success. And he'd maybe tell you a couple of things that he's learned along the way building this vineyard. He might give you instructions on how to get the best out of it. He might say, right, you see this wine press here? You might need to give it a little jiggle like that to get it going. And once you get it going, then you can start pumping and then you'll get the wine through. Or he might think, right, you see this watchtower? What I've noticed is actually the wolves, they come in the winter and they come from the east. uh, So they can be... uh, You can scare them away with this torch. If you put a flaming torch there and wave it, then that'll get the wolves away. And he's like, well, actually, maybe some foxes come and they come from the north side. And what I do to distract the foxes away is that I blow this uh, horn at them and scare them away. And they do that. And he's almost like he would set you up. He'd tell you all that little local knowledge to let you know and be like, right, these are the things that you need to watch out for. I think a modern day adaption, something that I'm thinking about, is it might be the same if you're getting a babysitter for the first time. You're, you're letting your, your child stay with this babysitter while you go off out. You might give them detailed instructions. Uh, I, we have uh, looked after Chuck and Taryn's kids uh, before when they've been away. Um, and I can tell you the instructions that we get are very detailed. Obviously from Taryn, not from Chuck. They're very detailed, very specific. Some actually more instructions for the dog, for Teddy, than they are for uh, the kids. Uh, they're almost self-sustaining. But they're very detailed. And in the same way that if I was uh, dropping off... Uh, Levi with the babysitter, we'd maybe say we'd give detailed instructions. Like he goes to bed at this time. He likes this as his bedtime story. He's allowed to watch this, but he's not allowed to watch that. Um, you know, uh, if he tries and gets sweets, then tell him that he's not allowed to have sweets. He might want these toys when he's sleeping. He might want this. All these things give detailed instructions. And the reason, I mean, the reason I would be giving these instructions is because I don't want to be disturbed if I'm having a night out. I'd be like, well, I can make sure that he's okay, that everything's okay. I'd set that babysitter up for a win so that they could have an enjoyable evening, so that Levi could have an enjoyable evening, and so we could have an enjoyable evening. But imagine, if you will, to my dismay, I come home and I find Levi out on the front step and the music is blaring out of the house. Uh, There's graffiti all over the walls. Um, There's um, just... We've been locked out. The locks have been changed. There's a massive party going on. The, the police have been called and Levi is just sitting there. Imagine that. It'd be terrible, wouldn't it? Absolutely terrible. I'd be furious. And Jesus is showing here that that's what's happened to Israel. It's almost like he set them up for when he said, you are my people, I am your God. And then they've gone against, they've gone against and said, no, no, we can do it better on our own. We don't need to listen to you, but we can do our own thing. We see that in the, in the servants that are sent by the owner to get a portion of the harvest. Not all of the harvest, but a portion of the harvest. He sends back and says, get my portion. And it says in verse 3 that they seize that, that servant. They beat him. They send him away empty-handed says later on that some of them they beat, some of them they kill. And at this point as well, Jesus is a master storyteller. And he's like kind of cranking it up to 11 almost. And he's like, in verse 6, then, then the owner will send the son. And you can imagine the people listening at the time be like, no, why would you do that? That's a terrible idea. Why would you do that? And he's like, and he sends his son, his loved son. And he says, surely, Surely they'll respect him. Surely they'll listen to him. And as we see, instead they think, oh, we can get the inheritance. We can, we can kill the heir 
that can be our inheritance and we can chuck him out. And the irony of this is that Jesus is foretelling what's going to happen to him as well. And the vineyard is a mess. All those prophets, those servants, they've been mocked, they've been ridiculed. And again, this was reminded the people of that scripture, Isaiah 5. And what it says in Isaiah 5 is that God planted a vineyard. He did everything he could to get the choice wines. And all he got was sour berries. Something that couldn't be used for wine. Something that was of no use. The harvest was spoiled. And to the religious leaders, Jesus has taken a shot right at them, right there. And saying, the harvest of Israel is spoiled. You can't make anything out of it. But the second foundational truth is that that harvest, the best harvest, comes out of relationship with the vineyard owner. It comes out of relationship with him. The tenants, they opted for, their, for themselves. They opted uh, to work on themselves and to reject that vineyard owner. They opted instead to plow into religion. And the nation of Israel opted for that religion over relationship. Instead of looking after the ground, they ruined and destroyed it. They'd focused on the rules rather than focusing on the one who they see right in front of them, the Son, Jesus. And I think sometimes we need to remember we can often focus too much on our little patch and too much on keeping the rules than actually of maintaining that relationship. And in this passage, I feel that religion can feel like a mile wide, but there's no depth to it. There's no depth. But actually, relationship is not as wide, but there's deep roots there. There's deep roots. And I just pray for some of us. I want, I want us to be people that have those deep roots, where we have that relationship with the vineyard owner. And he says, well, maybe you want to do that there with the vineyard. And we go, oh, yeah, yeah, we'll do that. Or maybe you want to do this. Maybe try that, not that. Well, oh, yes, yes, that's right. Having that constant relationship with God, having that constant prayer life with Jesus, of keeping that harvest going. Because where, no, where there's no harvest, there's no relationship. But we want to be people who are harvestful, who have plenty of harvest. So we want to dig into that relationship with Jesus. And relationship is so much better. Imagine the harvest when, when we've done that. We've listened to the vineyard owner and we've done that. There's going to be such a plentiful crop that people are going to come around us, that people are going to see us and think, oh, yeah, I want to be around him. So a question for us to think about is, do we feel we're spread thin? Do you feel that maybe you've scattered long and wide and actually you're thinking, oh, I've, I've just listened to religion and I've just spread myself thin but where I need to, to have deeper roots? What are the things that maybe God today is saying, we need to uproot that, we need to just let that go and delve deeper into these roots, delve deeper into this relationship here. The vineyard belongs to God. The harvest comes from a relationship. And finally, our third truth is it starts with the cornerstone. So Jesus uh, says what will happen to these tenants when the vineyard owner comes. He says they'll be chucked out. They'll be killed. They'll be taken away and new tenants will come in. And again, what he's saying there is rather than it just being about the nation of Israel, it's about the Gentiles. It's about you and me. It's about this gospel for everyone. And he quotes a psalm 
in this moment. He quotes Psalm 118. And it's almost like a little punchline to the whole story where he's uh, been laying it up. He's been laying it on thick and saying, oh, yes, uh, the sun comes. They're like, no, don't let the sun come to the vineyard. They're going to lose. They're going to die. And then he quotes the psalm right at the end. He says, the stone the builders have rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this and it's marvelous in our eyes. And Jesus is almost like saying, you think someone's going to die here, but actually it's your religion that's going to die. It's your uh, keeping the rules that's going to die, but actually I'm going to come and I'm going to be that sacrifice, but I'm going to come back. I'm going to be the one that was rejected, but actually I become the crucial ingredient. I'm integral to this story. And when again they heard this, this cornerstone image, that would have again um, made them remember about when the temple was built itself. And um, the temple, the time before Jesus, when they built the temple, it was like where God was, where God was housed almost. This was the place where they thought, Let's, this is where God is. And the foundations, they were massive, huge rocks. Uh, it was almost an engineering feat at the time to have these rocks to be able to bring them in uh, to make sure that they were then building the foundations for the temple. And there was this one stone they had, and um, they looked at it, they got all the rocks together, and it was almost like uh, picking uh, your sports team at a playground on a, on a kind of, in the school time, on a, on a Monday morning or whatever. They'd be like, right, you can be in my team, you can be in my team. But instead of that, they were doing it with rocks. Well, that's how I imagine it anyway. And they were looking at this rock, and they were like, this rock, it's a bit odd looking. It doesn't fit. I mean, I don't know where we put it. It's, it, it yeah, let's just chuck it away. So they just throw this rock away, and they try and start building the temple. And then uh, they actually, as they're building the temple, they're like, something's not quite right. Something's not quite right. We need a cornerstone. What the cornerstone was, was it was uh, the stone that you built everything around. You built it all around, and then that was the one that you'd kind of start your angle on, and everything else will be built around it. And they realized that this stone that they'd rejected over here was actually the perfect fit to be that cornerstone. So the stone that they'd maybe cast aside, rejected, actually, that was the one they needed to build around. So then they they got all their bricks again, and then they started building on that one. And then the temple of God was built because of that, around that, centered around that chief stone, that cornerstone. And if you've built anything before, whether you've built a log cabin or you've built... um, you know, um, house, I don't know, maybe you built a sand castle, um, all of those things, they need the right foundation. You've got to get the right things in place, the right stones in place, and build around that. And those uh, building the temple realized that stone was perfect. And Jesus here is making the point that he is that cornerstone, and he is the one to build his life around. And that is that third truth, that we need to build around the cornerstone we need to build around jesus and he's urging us to not build as and kind of fit that in but to start with that and build again it's not like the last piece of the jigsaw that you're like oh i'm sure we can kind of get jesus in here if we really kind of try it won't work it needs to start with jesus so in our marriages, our foundation is Jesus. In our singleness, our foundation is Jesus. In our uh, parenting, our foundation is Jesus. In our community, in our interactions with others, in our workplace, in our finances, in our gifts, our time, our talents, our foundation is Jesus, 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 
Jesus. And we see this throughout the New Testament where uh, Peter tells this to the religious leaders, the Sanhedrin in Acts 4. Paul also writes this in Ephesus 2, which we'll hear about later, that the church itself is built on the foundations of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. We build our lives around him, not the other way around. So are we starting with Jesus? Is he our foundational rock? Is he our cornerstone? Or are we desperately trying to fit him in? Those three foundational truths is that God is the vineyard owner. We're not in control, but he is. The harvest comes from a relationship and that we build around the cornerstone. And I'll finish with this. Um, One of my favorite movies of all time, and probably arguably one of the greatest movies of all time, is The Shawshank Redemption. Who's seen The Shawshank Redemption, right? It's a great film. Interestingly, uh, when it it, um, first came out, no one had seen it at the cinema. And probably because no one could, like, actually tell you what it was called. It was like The Shawshank Redemption. People, like, wouldn't be able to say it. They'd be like, The Swiss Shank Redemption? Or the, you know, they'd be saying all these things and they couldn't get it. So, like, no one went to see it at the cinema. But actually it became... Uh, probably the most rented film for years on years from Blockbuster. Who remembers Blockbuster? But yeah, the most rented film from Blockbuster for years, just because people were like, hey, you've got to see this film. Go and rent it at Blockbuster. Uh, simpler time when we had Blockbuster, wasn't it? Um, but nobody had seen it, but then suddenly, slowly, people start to watch it. And this uh, story of the Shawshank Redemption is based on a small, short story by Stephen King. And it's based on uh, the life of Andy Dufresne, or as they say in the Shawshank Redemption, Andy Dufresne, uh, that's my Morgan Freeman impression there, uh, where he is in prison uh, for a crime he believes he's innocent for, and it follows his time in prison. And his best friend in prison is Morgan Freeman, who uh, is known as Red. Uh, And, you know, Morgan Freeman would be a great best friend to have, I think, in prison. If you've got to be in prison, Morgan Freeman is a great person to have. Good wisdom to you. Um, But Red has been in... Uh, prison pretty much his whole adult life. He's been trying to get parole for ages and he just keeps getting rejected. He keeps getting rejected. And they have this conversation, Andy and Red, about um, getting out. What are they going to do when they get out? And Red's like, to be honest, I don't know. Like, I'm actually in some ways more comfortable in prison because I know what I do, I know my role, but when I'm out, I've got nothing to go to. I've got nothing to go to. But Andy knows exactly what he's going to do when he gets out. And he tells Red this story of his plan once he gets out of prison. And he also asks Red, he's like, Red, promise to do me a favour. When you get out, follow these instructions. Now Red's like, okay, yeah, I guess so. I can, I can follow these instructions. It's probably never going to happen. But these are the instructions. And he says, in a hayfield near Buxton in Maine, There's one with a long rock wall and at the end of that wall there's a big oak tree at the north end. Red's like, okay. And then this is the crucial part. He says, in that spot under that oak tree you will find a rock with no earthly business in a hayfield. There's no reason that rock should be there. It's made of black volcanic glass. looks different to every other single rock. He says, there's something buried under that rock. I want you to have it. And later, when we see the end of the story, we see that under that rock, that rock that had no earthly business 
being there is Andy's treasure. It's his treasure. That stone didn't fit in. It looked out of place. But under that rock, the treasure. And in this modern world, Jesus may look out of place. He may look like he doesn't fit. He may look like he's an oddball. But when we delve into him, when we see under him, he is the treasure that we are craving. He is the treasure we're after. He is the treasure that we long for. So to build our lives on that right foundation, we need to find that rock and find the treasure. We need to find Jesus. He's here today and find that treasure. Why don't we stand and we'll pray for us.